Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Why do people lie about the causes of the war? Well, simple. It has to be a moral crusade or no one would support it. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll... And if you're listening to this podcast on October 31st, 2023, it's the last day you can get that $80 coupon on my latest class, The Age of Jackson. It's the lowest price you'll ever see it. So head on over to mclanahanacademy.com. Use the coupon code MANIFESTDESTINY to get that class off, $80 off that class. And then also, you can use the coupon code PODCAST and get 25% off every other class. So it's a win-win. You can also support the show, of course, by... Going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on the support tab. You can go to YouTube where you watch the video. Click on the super thanks button under the video, little heart button. You can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. All kinds of great ways to support the show. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. It does help get more eyes and ears on the show. And also... Send me their show requests, like this one. This is from a listener. It's a listener-generated episode. They sent me an article by Jacob Hornberger, who, of course, was a libertarian candidate for president. It's about the war. And Hornberger asks, why is it that people lie about Abraham Lincoln? Why do they lie about the war? And his answer is simple. Well, because it has to be a moral crusade. Because if it wasn't a moral crusade, Americans would be less inclined to support a war for conquest. Now, I'm not so certain about that. I mean, if you go and look at uh, all of the neoconservatives and the left, they're more than happy to go out and uh, say that Southerners needed to be slaughtered. And in fact, when you look at what they're doing, just just take, for example, this recent uh, act by the iconoclasts and melting down the Lee statue from Charlottesville. This is their vindication. This is their retribution. What they want to do is execute all these people. And if they can't physically execute the people, they're going to execute the statues. And in fact, they've said it, right? So if the statue is being melted down, it's like an execution. They want to uh, destroy any vestige of what they call traitors. They don't really care what the motivation for it was. In fact, you can't even make up the irony of their stupid acts. They're calling the swords into plowshares when you already have a monument in Arlington, 
National Cemetery, the Confederate monument there, that actually has that inscription on it. <clears throat> the act of putting up the monument was putting swords into plowshares. Not to them. Melting those down as swords into plowshares. You, you can't make this up. These people are so dense. And as I've said, this is, I mean, if their only skill is making condensation on glass, you're in trouble. But that's what their skill is. They have, they have the intellectual capacity of a slug. And, and that's, these are the people that are driving the actions of the left. And I would say the same thing about the historians, quote-unquote, who are involved in all of this stuff. They lie over and over and over again. And that's the Hornberger piece. I mean, look, he's saying people lie. He's turning the lie charge back on the establishment historians, on the dopes who say these things. And I, and I pointed this out um, a couple of weeks ago in uh, a piece on the Arlington Confederate Monument where, and, and all the other things that are happening. You know, believe who these, when these people tell you who they are, believe them. This is another case. When they tell you they want to execute Robert E. Lee, believe them. When they tell you that's their goal, they want to execute these people. I mean, look, Elon Musk on, on X Twitter said, I mean, they want your extinction. They want it. Uh, they believe them. When they tell you who they are, believe them. Uh, if they could somehow figure out a way to do it, to get rid of all the deplorables, they would do it and have no remorse or compunction about it. These people are dedicated revolutionaries. They're not reconciliationists. They are dedicated revolutionaries. And if you're a dedicated revolutionary, the other side has to be eliminated. And it's not just about public art. This is the soft side of it. They're hoping to make you irrelevant. Again, goes back to when Hillary Clinton called people deplorables, or Barack Obama stood up and said, well, these people just cling to their Bibles and guns. They're dismissing people. And they're dismissing people because by doing that, you dehumanize them. This is the same tactic that happened in the 1850s when Republicans called Southerners devils, uh, the drunken vomit of an uneasy civilization. I mean, that's, that's Charles Sumner. This is what they're doing. They're dehumanizing people. Your opinions don't matter. You really don't matter. And if they can, if they can symbolically execute these Confederates, they're going to do it. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the entire point. And so Hornberger actually puts his thumb on the pulse of that. He says, you know, this is, this is interesting um, because it's almost like the war was fought yesterday. And for many of these people, it is. I mean, they're still engaged in another reconstruction. Go out. I went to the Barnes & Noble the other day. I was looking at the titles of the books. There are books now being written about a third reconstruction, another type of reconstruction. We're back in that. We're in the another midst of a military reconstruction in America. We're trying to complete the work. This is, I mean, look, Eric Foner started this process with his book on reconstruction. The work had to be completed. But we've gotten to a point now where they actually have power enough to start doing some of it. That's, that's the whole point. So this Hornberger piece is interesting. He says at the beginning that both sides are, are wrong in the, in the war. I, look, I don't think you can say that anytime you're looking for self-determination, if that was the point of the war. I mean, we can, we can talk about the fact that the Confederacy was a slaveholding republic, a slaveholding federal republic. This is true. So was the United States. It was still a slaveholding federal republic when the Confederacy was formed in February of 1861. You still had slave states in the United States, and William H. Seward was working overtime to try to keep those states in the Union. Abraham Lincoln was trying to uh, ensure that 
he had no intention of abolishing slavery in any state, that the states remained as they did before. He had no intention of, of uh, affecting slavery in any place where it already existed. His main point was in the territories. And even during the war, you still had slave states in the Union. In fact, Kentucky and Delaware, Kentucky had slave auctions in November of 1865. If my, if my math serves me correct, that's months after the war was over. Delaware didn't abolish slavery until December of 1865. New Jersey didn't officially abolish slavery until December of 1865, even though there was just a handful of slaves in the state. And they were basically looking at that as, you know, dentured servitude at that point. But still, it was there. So we had, we had two slaveholding federal republics slugging it out for control of territory. Well, that's not a war over slavery. That's not a moral crusade. We know that slavery was, ending slavery was a byproduct of the war, and we know that the South is actually willing to do it itself. We have plenty of evidence to this, to this effect. So, uh, look, it's, it's easy and convenient to say, you know, this side was wrong, this side was wrong, to, to, to not try to get labeled you know, some bad word because you're trying to look at this objectively. But the fact is, if you want to put blame on who was the aggressor, well, it's, it's the North. 100%. Lincoln made a calculated move in 1861 to try to resupply Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens, knowing full well what that would do. His cabinet knew it, which is why they wouldn't let him do it at first. But Lincoln kept pressing, and by April, the cabinet approved. This is why Winfield Scott said, look, go out and blockade the ports. Now, that's an act of war. It's clearly an act of war. You cannot blockade states that are still in your union. Uh, this was something that was litigated in what were called the prize cases, which, if you just hang tight, there'll be something about that at McClanahan Academy within the next day or so. This is something that was litigated in the prize cases. You had enough justices to say that that wasn't an act of war, but it really was. Four justices actually disagreed. But still, Lincoln was taking belligerent acts towards the South even before there were any shots fired. And so the South responded. They're saying that that fort, Fort Sumter, was in their territory because they seceded from the Union legally. They were a de facto and de jure independent federal republic. South Carolina, of course, did it on their own accord. South Carolina is saying that it was a sovereign state in a federal republic. The same thing could be said for what happened in Boston. I mean, you just go back to uh, what happened with... Um, with Boston in the you know Battle of Bunker Hill. I mean, what was happening there? The British had actually occupied territory, which they considered theirs, in Boston, and the militia of Massachusetts tried to dislodge them and did so. The British said, that's ours. And the people of Boston said, no, that's not yours. This is ours. That's our territory. You can't have it. Well, what's the difference? We're okay with the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is actually the Battle of Breed's Hill. We're okay with that. But we're not okay with South Carolina doing the exact same thing 80 years later. Because, well, it's the United States. Instead of this evil entity, the British. You see? And Lincoln himself would say that, well, sure, the South can, can uh, have a right to revolution. This is Michael Anton trying to... Uh, figure out a way to make Lincoln a secessionist. Sure, yeah, the South can have a right to revolution. They just lost, so now they're traitors. 
If you won, you wouldn't be traitors. But because you lost, you're a traitor. That's the argument. And I find this all fascinating. Again, because there is a lie. There is a great lie in America. And that great lie is the Lincoln myth. That the South was the aggressor. The South was the problem. From the beginning of the Federal Republic, but really since the ratification of the Constitution in 1789, what we've had is a long strain of nationalists who were disrupting the Federal Republic. And they were the problem. They were the individuals who were disrupting what had been established by the Constitution. This is what all of the Jeffersonians, all of the real Republicans with the lowercase r, were opposed to. Innovation, nationalism, because that was not what the United States was founded on, whether it was when the Articles of Confederation were written or whether it was when the Constitution was ratified. And we know that because of the way the Constitution was argued during ratification. If anyone sniffed that we were going to get a centralized, centralized government like we have now, they would not have ratified the Constitution. They had to persuade people that didn't want that that it was never going to happen. Well, when it began to happen, there were those that said, all right, look, we're just out. And you can look at all kinds of issues. I mean, yes, slavery was an important issue. The question is why slavery? I've addressed that on this podcast several times. It wasn't about slavery in the states. It was about slavery in the territories. And frankly, I mean, look, the South's complaint was that they had a Supreme Court decision that settled the issue and the North was unwilling to abide by a Supreme Court decision, even though for years they told the South, you go to abide by a Supreme Court decision, suck it up. And now when the roles are reversed, the North is unwilling to do it because their sacred, their sacred Supreme Court had gone against them. You see a lot of similar things happening in the United States now. I mean, the, the, the progressives for years have told people, just suck it up. The Supreme Court's ruled. You've got to abide by the Supreme Court. Well, when the Supreme Court does something they don't like, no, no, we don't have to abide by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's wrong on this. Just ignore the Supreme Court. You see, these people have one objective. It's power. Lincoln had one objective. It was power. He could save the Union, or he could save his party and his power, power, and he chose to save his party and his power. That's it. That's it. Lincoln could have compromised. He could have advocated the Crittenden Compromise. Americans would have supported it. And he could have saved the Union at that point, but he chose not to do so. Now, this Hornberger piece has a couple of interesting points in it, so I do want to talk about that a little bit. Um... And he says, he says, Lincoln had one reason, and one reason alone for initiating war against the Confederacy, to keep the nation intact by suppressing the South secession. That was it. That was Lincoln's sole aim. Prior to the war, he had made it clear that slavery was legal under the U.S. Constitution. Thus, he believed the only way to end it legally would have been a bi-constitutional amendment. This is true. I mean, he, he certainly said that. In fact, Lincoln's fingerprints were all over the original 13th Amendment which would have kept slavery perpetual in the places where it already existed. But um, the South saw through that. They said, well, look, that's not the issue here. We know you can't touch slavery in the States. We know that. We believe you when you say that. Well, some didn't. But certainly uh, some did. They thought, all right, well, this isn't really the issue here. The issue is the territories. And the Supreme Court has ruled that... Those territories are open to all American citizens to bring their property. Now, again, in 2023, that's a hard thing to say, that people are property. We don't agree with that anymore. 
But Lincoln, by the way, was willing to let slavery exist. We know this because he's on the record in one of his messages to Congress saying that slavery could essentially exist until about 1890 into 1910, somewhere in there. Slavery would have continued to exist into the 20th century. He was willing to let that happen. It would have been a gradual abolition. But again, Southerners had started proposing these kind of things during the war because they preferred independence to subjugation. And that's what they considered a government under the Lincoln administration. And we know, of course, that Lincoln's naked grab for power was also complete because of how he treated northern civilians who opposed his administration. I mean, look, you've got all kinds of evidence of that. Civilians being thrown in jail, habeas corpus suspended. You've got a Supreme Court decision, uh, ex, well, at least in the circuit, ex parte Merriman. Lincoln's ticked about that. We know that after the war, when the Supreme Court and Salmon P. Chase said we have uh, you cannot uh, prosecute people in military courts when civil courts are open. The Congress just removes jurisdiction from the Supreme Court over those issues. And, by the way, reduces the number of justices so Andrew Johnson can't appoint one. This is a naked grab for power. That's what the Republican Party was all about in the 1860s. They made it clear every time you turned around. Hornberger says, uh, Indeed, further proof of Lincoln's aim is seen in his Emancipation Proclamation, which freed slaves only in certain areas. If you were waging the war to end slavery, wouldn't you proclaim the freedom of all slaves, not just some of them? As he points out here, it's, he doesn't say it, but there were slaves still in the United States. And those slaves were in the United States until December of 1865. So, if ending slavery was the case, then why didn't he just say, look, all, slaves, all slavery's ended in the United States everywhere? Because he had no authority to do it, no legal authority at all. And in fact, Benjamin Robbins Curtis, who was one of the dissenting votes in Dred Scott, which is the case that, of course, the Republican Party went ballistic over. One of the dissenting, boy, one of the dissenting votes on that decision said uh, that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was 100% illegal. He couldn't do that. If the states are still in union, you cannot do this. You don't have any war powers here to do something like this. He asked another question. He said, what if the Confederate states seceded today and declared their independence? Does anyone doubt that federal forces would be sent into the South again to suppress the secession? Obviously, their aim would not be to end slavery, but to keep the nation intact. The same aim that Lincoln had when he ordered federal forces to invade the South. So why the lie, he says. Why do we talk about the North going to war to end slavery? Why not teach American children the truth that the Civil War was waged to prevent secession and that ending slavery was simply a byproduct of the war. He says, I suggest that the reason for this lie is that it, the proponents of the Civil War know that suppressing secession might not be considered by many to be a noble cause for a war that killed and maimed hundreds of thousands of people and destroyed half the country, not to mention that it damaged the freedom of, and democratic processes of the country. Not so with ending slavery. That's something noble. That's something that many people would say was worth the tremendous sacrifices in life, limb, freedom, and prosperity. In fact, that's what they say. This is the West Coast Stroudsian response. This is a 1776 commission report when they try to refute the 1619 project. Well, wait a second here. We lost hundreds of thousands of men to do exactly what you're talking about. This is a noble cause for freedom. This is the, this is the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln fabricated a myth in 1863 at Gettysburg. As Gary Wills said, he revolutionized the revolution. It created a new kind of revolution. 
So he says, so Hornberger says, thus the lie comes into existence. A civil war was waged to end slavery, it is said, which is a noble cause, one worth sacrificing the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and the destruction of half the country. That's it. So he asks, why do some proponents of the Civil War consider the suppression of secession to be less than a noble cause? With secession, people are simply saying, we don't want to be associated with you anymore. We wish to separate our states from this country and establish our own country. With the suppression of secession, people are essentially responding, tough luck. We don't care whether you want to continue associating with us or not. You're going to initiate force against, we're going to initiate force against you to prevent you from going your way. We will force you to remain associated with us. We will kill you and destroy you until you change your mind. It's fairly obvious that position doesn't have the nobility that ending slavery does. That's undoubtedly why the lie began. I mean, true, right? We believe that people have self-determination, even in personal relationships. If you say, look, I don't want to be with you anymore, you can go your own way. And there's the courts have backed all that up. There's nothing people can do about it. And if somebody does try to do something about it, well, they're seen as bad people. If, if somebody goes out and beats someone down because of this, well, that's an act of violence, domestic violence. You can't do that. Well, why is it any different when a state does it? Why is it any different when half the United States does it to the, or more than half the United States does it to a minority? Why? Why is that okay? Because, well, the United States. I mean, this is what you get, get to. And you've got some really strange people that believe in the Lincolnian myth, in the righteous cause myth. Some really, really strange people. I'll say that. And that includes the establishment historians who shill for the empire. I mean, that's what they're doing. They don't want to be... They, they like all the publicity and celebrity and things. I mean, you can see it. Every time they're on TV, they all look starstruck and just so happy to be here on TV. Oh, I mean, I just uh, just have to do, I'm just, I, you know, I'm just so smart. I'm so, I'm, thank you for recognizing my brilliance and my intelligence. You see it. And if they get around anybody that has any kind of name and fame, I mean, they're just, oh, oh, they just can't, they fall all over themselves. He says, in fact, I believe that Lincoln himself began realizing that as the war progressed and the death and destruction mounted exponentially. When he provoked the incident at Fort Sumter, I think he figured that the war would be quickly brought to a conclusion and that the seceding states would be quickly defeated. Well, Hornberger has made a, I mean, he has just com, uh, you know, committed heresy there. He said when Lincoln provoked the incident, <laughs> that's heresy. Lincoln didn't do that. He was seeking peace. He's just, a, it just, this is just what Lincoln has to do. He just has to send in supplies to Sumter and Pickens because this is, he's just doing what he's supposed to do as president. Well, we know that's, I mean, Buchanan was president for months before Lincoln assumed office, and nothing like this happened. We know that Buchanan thought about sending a, a supply mission in, but it was shot at and it turned around. And he never did it again, because he knew it would provoke action. And the men of Sumter in South Carolina were allowed, were allowed to mill around the city. I mean, there's, there's nobody hurting these people. In fact, nobody was even killed in the bombardment. They let them know it was going to happen. Hey, tomorrow we're going to bombard the fort, so get out. And they did. <laughs> you can't make this up. The only person that was killed was after the bombardment in an accident. And they were allowed to sail back to Charleston and go on their own way. Boy, what a bunch of vicious, violent criminals. 
Lincoln's mindset was much like that the Washington, D.C. crowd of socialites and sightseers that gathered in Virginia to watch the first Battle of Bull Run at the inception of the war. It's much like that. They viewed the battle as sort of a big sports event, one that would be over rather quickly, with the federal team winning. Once it was clear that the Confederate forces were prevailing in the battle, the D.C. socialites and sightseers ran for their lives back to D.C. in fear that they would be captured or killed. That's essentially what many supporters of the Civil War have done. They have fled from the truth and convinced themselves that the Civil War was initiated principally to end slavery and only secondarily to suppress secession. True. Now, some will admit, well, yeah, I mean, sure, it's about, uh, it wasn't initially about ending slavery, but it is about, and uh, you know, going against treason. These people were traitors. Traitors. And so he gets into that. During the statute controversy, people have accused the secessionists of being traitors. They said it was treason for Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, and others to secede from the Union. But isn't treason a legal concept, Hornberger says? If the Constitution permitted secession which many people believe, then how could it be treasonous to secede? Indeed, at the end of the war, federal officials took Davis into custody and threatened to prosecute him for treason. Deciding that discretion was a better part of valor, however, they dropped the prosecution. One reason might have been that they didn't want, didn't want to risk a Supreme Court ruling on the matter. Now, I don't think the Supreme Court would have sided against the United States. But the issue with this is, simply... If Davis had to be prosecuted for treason, you had to have witnesses against the effect, and it had to be in the place where the treason actually and you wouldn't have found people that would have agreed with it in a, in a trial. It would not have gone, I think, the way of, of uh, the federal government. And this is the Cynthia Nicoletti book. I mean, she says, look, even though I, I'm apologizing, but I think that the Davis group actually had a pretty, str pretty strong case, maybe even a stronger case than the United States government did. And maybe that would have been embarrassing. I don't think that the Davis defense would have won, but they would have presented their case, and that would have made for an entirely different situation. He says, there's an important point about secession that needs to be made, one that exposes the hypocrisy of those who condemn the South for seceding. That point is, the United States itself was founded on secession, and most of the people who condemn the South for seceding nonetheless celebrate America's secession from Great Britain in 1776. We call it the American Revolution, but that's really a misnomer. It wasn't a revolution at all. A revolution is an attempt by rebels to oust the existing regime and take control of the central government. That's not what the colonists in 1776 were doing. They had no interest in taking control of the British government. They simply wanted to secede from it. Keep in mind that the people who signed the Declaration of Independence were not Americans. They were British subjects, just as the people of the Confederacy were American citizens. Now, there is an important distinction to make there. You can actually make the claim that the, that the founders were more traitorous than the Southerners in 1776 and Southerners in 1861 because of those two terms. The founders were subjects of the crown, and any act against the crown by law was considered treason. In the United States, these people were not subjects of the general government. They were citizens in a federal republic. And therefore, they weren't committing an overt act against the Federal Republic. They were simply saying, we wish to go our own way as citizens through a democratic process, which is what they did through conventions. They were not subjects, they were citizens. It is an entirely different name, and it carries an entirely different designation. These people were citizens equal to those in the North, and the North was saying that we can coerce you to stay in our union. In other words, you are a second-class citizen because we can tell you what to do. 
That's not a citizen. You are then a subject. They were not subjects. A very important distinction to make. So the men who signed the declaration were simply saying, we don't want to be part of your country anymore. We don't want to associate with you. We want to establish our own country. They didn't want to take over the British government. They simply wanted to secede from Great Britain and establish their own country, just as Southerners wanted to do nearly 90 years later. Today, some Americans celebrate George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Patrick Henry as patriots for seceding from their country while at the same time condemning Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson as traitors for seceding from theirs. Of course, often it's a question of who wins and who loses that determines whether a secessionist is a patriot or a traitor. Great Britain certainly not considered its rebelling British colonies to be patriots. On the contrary, it considered them to be traitors and criminals, the same way that many Americans today view Davis, Lee, Jackson, and other Southerners who lost their, their war for secession. And look, I just talked about the difference. There is a difference. You could actually make, again, a pretty strong case that the founding generation were really traitors because they were saying, we are no longer your subject. And because of law, established law, in Great Britain, that could be a charge of treason. But in the United States, we had no such situation. We never had that. We always had self-determination and independence as the core of citizenship. People claim that Southerners were fighting to preserve slavery and therefore cannot under any circumstance be considered patriots. Hornberger says, but they missed two points. One is that the secessionists in 1776 intended to preserve slavery in the new country, and nonetheless, they're still considered patriots. That's true. That's true. About 100% true. In fact, George Washington himself, when the British were uh, vacating New York, he said, look, you can't take our slaves. You can't do that. Uh, we want our slaves back. And the British ignored it. Um, I mean... The documentation is everywhere. You have you have the British saying that this war was for slavery in Virginia and New York in 1776. We don't think that, but all of the states in 1776 were slaveholding states. All of them. There wasn't one that wasn't. They were all slaveholding states. Even John Adams wrote a pro-slavery constitution for Massachusetts before it was rejected and then another one was implemented, but it ratified. But still, John Adams, a Massachusetts, wrote a pro-slavery constitution for Massachusetts because Massachusetts was a slaveholding state. It was only ended through a court action. You see? Uh, I mean, that this is true. You, it's irrefutable. The other point is related. It's possible to fight for two principles, one noble and the other ignoble. Lee provides a good example. When the war broke out, Lincoln offered him command of, over all Union forces. Lee turned down the offer and returned to Virginia, where he assumed command over the Confederacy's Army of Northern Virginia. Not, not at that time. That would come later. Uh, so there's, the history is a little bit off here. He didn't assume command of that yet. At the time, his wife was also a slave owner. Critics today call Lee a traitor. They say that he betrayed his country by taking up arms against it, just as some people consider George Washington, who was also a slave owner, to be a traitor for taking up arms against his country. The problem is that such critics are looking at the situation from the standpoint of a 21st century American, one who has been indoctrinated into viewing the federal government and the nation in a way that is entirely different now 
from how 18th century and 19th century Americans viewed them. Today's Americans are taught to view the United States as one nation, consisting of states that are inferior and subordinate to the federal government. That was not the mindset of our ancestors. They viewed the nation as a collection of sovereign independent entities, i.e. states. They didn't view it as a nation at all, really. It was a federal republic. That had simply confederated together to facilitate matters of common interest. In fact, even Alexander Hamilton uses that confederated republic. I mean, it was a federal republic, not a nation. And that was made clear over and over again during the ratification debate. And I've, I've talked about this stuff on this podcast. So um, that the states were sovereign. And look, I've got great classes at McLeanahan Academy on this too. Classes on secession, classes on the war, classes on the Constitution, the originalist papers, all of that stuff is there. If you're a McClanahan Academy student, all this would be like, oh yeah, this is all secondhand. I I know all this stuff because you've taken all these classes. He also says, proponents of the Civil War ignore some other important points. If the war was actually about slavery rather than secession, U.S. forces could have invaded the Confederacy, freed the slaves, and returned home, leaving the Confederacy as an independent nation. After all, doesn't the U.S. government justify some of its foreign interventions in that way today? After the infamous WMDs failed to be immediately found in Iraq, U.S. officials said that they were actually invading and occupying Iraq to free the Iraqi people from Saddam Hussein's tyranny. In the process, they didn't absorb Iraq into the United States. They could have done the same thing with the Confederacy, invade, free the slaves, and return home without forcibly reabsorbing the Confederacy. The reason they didn't is clear. The war was about secession, not slavery. The war was about subjugation not slavery. And look, people realize this. They realize it, even during the war. If we're saying what we're doing is, I mean, I mentioned the prize cases. There was some discussion about this. Well, if if this is true, then this is a war of subjugation. That's what we're doing. We're subduing, we're subjugating these people in the the South. And that's what was happening. It was a war of subjugation and perhaps even extermination. These Southerners had to go. He says, finally, the matter of statues and the honoring and glorification of Union leaders. It's important to keep in mind that the grave war crimes ordered by Lincoln and committed by Philip Sheridan and William T. Sherman, especially in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley and in Sherman's March to the Sea, Traditional rules of warfare precluded the waging of war against civilians, a principle that had been taught to Sheridan and Sherman at West Point. Yet that is precisely what those two men and the troops under their command did. And look, Grant, same thing. I mean, Grant's the one that started shutting down all kinds of things in Vicksburg. In the early part of the war, there's a book uh, by Mark Grimsley entitled The Hard Hand of War, which his contention is that in the early stages of the war, nobody really thought about this stuff. Uh, they, they, I mean, they did think about it. They tried really hard to protect civilian property, not to harm civilians. And then there was a shift. But he never said it was a total war. His argument is there was no total war. The South wasn't totally destroyed. We'll tell that to Southerners, because it certainly was. And there were war crimes committed. There's a really good book, uh, War Crimes Against Southern Civilians by Walter Bryan Sisko. Um, it's very good. Uh, and it, go, it goes into detail on all these things that happened in the South from documented evidence. Not just white Southerners, but also black Southerners who faced the hard hand of war as well. 
He says Sherman and Sheridan intentionally targeted women, children, seniors, and other non-combatants by burning their homes, their crops, and their towns and villages with the intent of killing them by starvation or exposure to the elements. The idea was that it would bring the war to an earlier conclusion, especially by demoralizing Confederate soldiers who would be losing their wives, children, siblings, and parents. It's a rather straight line from what was done in the South to the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the U.S. carpet bombing of North Korean towns and villages, the bombing of civilian targets in North Vietnam, the killing of civilians at Mai Lai, and countless other villages in South Vietnam, and the several missile and drone attacks on wedding parties in Afghanistan. Every one of these war crimes is based on the notion that it's okay as long as it saves American lives by ending the war sooner, especially by demoralizing the enemy. They all stretch back to the war crimes that Sheridan and Sherman committed in the South. There is, I mean, one major difference, and that's these war crimes are committed against Americans. Their own people, their own citizens, their fellow citizens. These others, you can say, I mean, you look at World War II, those were enemy combatants by a declared war. Not so in North Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, none of that. But they were enemy combatants in a foreign state. Of course, it doesn't excuse any of these things from happening. The United States gets off the hook when you bomb wedding parties. Barack Obama can launch drone strikes because he's Barack Obama. It doesn't matter. But that is an important distinction to make. These were Americans that were being slaughtered by other Americans. And it's okay. He says, I would remiss if I failed to mention the extreme dictatorial actions committed by Lincoln, his arrest of the Maryland legislature, his jailing of critical journalists, his suspension of habeas corpus, his embrace of conscription, his enactment of the legal tender laws. They were all illegal under our form of constitutional government. They are also characteristic of some of the most brutal dictatorships in history. Indeed, let's not forget that while Lincoln opposed slavery prior to being elected president, he was also a white supremacist, believing at least, at best, that blacks and whites should be kept separate and that blacks should be forcibly deported to Africa. I mean, that is true. This has all been documented. But, of course, the Lincolnites would... Oh, oh, but Lincoln changed his mind. Lincoln changed his mind. He didn't believe that. Which is dubious. I don't think Lincoln really did ever change his mind. Lincoln ended up, by, ended up winning the, and slavery was ended, which was the one good thing that came out of the war. But it's not necessary to honor war criminals and white supremacists simply because they won, especially when ending slavery wasn't the reason they initiated the Civil War. Indeed, does winning mean that lies and hypocrisy have to be a major legacy of the Civil War? Lies and hypocrisy. Well, of course, the whole righteous cause myth is a lie. The Lincoln myth is a lie. But if you don't have the Lincoln myth, then you really lose the moral high ground in anything in the United States. The Lincoln myth is something that held the United States together. Myth-making matters. And if the Lincoln myth goes away, well, all the nationalists lose their hold on what the United States really is, a federal republic. I mean, they lose their hold on the nation, and people could just have self-determination. Now, there's a lot of things that would make it much more complicated in 2023 than it was in 1861, particularly the financial situation and all the ties together. I mean, you would have... It's a much bigger mess now than it was in 61. You have far less independent people. There's all kinds of things to work out with that. But certainly, uh, the righteous cause myth is alive and well. People have to defend it because it makes them feel better. It gives them, as Hornberger's pointing out, it gives them a good feeling that they did the right thing. 
And all those people deserved it. That's what melting the leaf statue is about. He deserved it. And since we couldn't execute him in 1865, we're executing him now. That's the point. All right. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>